Welcome to Medieval Islamic Medicine. In our final episode, we examine the impact that the Islamic tradition has had on neighbouring cultures and the modern theory and practice of medicine. We've just seen at the end of the last program that there must have been great variety this Islamic uh, empire. I mean, there wasn't one empire, but like the medieval Islamic world stretched from Muslim Spain to India. And uh, one could ask how this uh, medical theory and practice developed in the heartlands of Islam influenced uh, the wider world, uh, not only within the Islamic world, but also neighboring cultures such as, you know, like uh, the Christian um, West and, for instance, China. So there was a lot of interaction. Sometimes people have this idea that, um, you know, on the one hand we have the West, the medieval Latin West, and then we have the East, and East and West, uh, never the twain shall meet, as Kipling put it. But that's not at all true. There was constant interchange between the different shores of the Mediterranean, if I start by looking, so to speak, uh, at the influence uh, in the West. Uh, so in the 11th and 12th century, people started to translating Arabic medical texts based often on Greek medical theory, into Latin. So, for instance, one famous translator is Constantine the African, who said in, you know, like, who came to Italy, uh, was in Salerno and Monte Cassino, and uh, translated quite a few, you know, like, medical texts uh, from Arabic into Latin. And these texts were, you know, like, kind of core curriculum in the nascent medical school of Salerno, and then also, some of these texts, like Honite's Introduction to Medicine, for instance, uh, became really the first text every medical student had to had to read. So that's that's one translator in the 11th century. Another translator in the 12th century is called Gerard of Cremona. Now, he dies in 1187. Constantine died before uh, 1099. So he's kind of a century later. He's called Gerard of Cremona, but he mostly works in Spain. Now, obviously, during over the, the, the later Middle Ages, a lot of Spain, which was under Muslim rule, uh, is reconquered by the Christians. And um, at certain times, there were quite, um, well, open-minded uh, rulers, such, such as Alfonso uh, the Sage or the Wise, Alfonso the Wise, Alfonso el Sabio, who had uh, Christians and uh, Jews and uh, others, you know, like, work together and translate medical law from Arabic, sometimes via Hebrew, into Latin. So Jared of Cremona fits into this uh, this picture. He works in in, in, in Toledo and Cordoba, and um, so in Muslims, I mean in Spain, which is no longer Muslim Spain, and uh, translates a lot of these texts. Another point of contact, so to speak, uh, is, um, is are the Crusader states. There, there's somebody called Stephen of Antioch, uh, who also translates or re revises a translation of uh, Al-Majusi's um, um, complete book on the medical art. So this is a 10th century text which gets translated into Latin and becomes, again, a core text for the medical curriculum in the universities. And there are many other people who translate, there are many other people who translate uh, from, from Arabic into Latin. And uh, so this uh, medical law, this medicine, as transmitted and further developed by the Arabs is the beginning of uh, medieval Latin medicine. And so, 
obviously there's interchange. Maybe I can just briefly mention also that Latin wasn't the only language used in order to transmit ideas from Arabic to the West. There was also Greek. So there, there's a Greek translation of Ibn al-Jazaz's uh, um, book, uh, The Sustenance of the Traveler. It's some sort of medical encyclopedia, Zad al-Musaf in Arabic. It's called Ephodia um, to Apodemuntos, the you know, like kind of the the, the the sustenance or the the things to eat for for him who is away from home, and uh, so this is a Greek translation produced in southern Italy, southern Italy, which was like a tri which had a trilingual community. There was Greek, Byzantine Greek, there was Latin obviously, and then there was uh, Arabic because uh, Sicily and certain parts of southern Italy until the late 11th century were occupied by the Arabs for you know, like hundreds of years. So. So you have like these different points of context. You have these translations into Latin and to less extent into into Byzantine Greek, and their impact on on the medical curriculum. Now, sometimes people think, oh well, then we get the Renaissance and then we get the big break. So we have the dark Middle Ages. Everything's dark in the Middle Ages. Everything's backward. And uh, this, I mean, certain critics have said. All, all the Arabs ever did is, uh, you know, like transmit Greek ideas and corrupt them, and then we get them into Latin. And they're even further corrupted by this, you know, like medieval Latin used for these translations. It's really terrible, and it's very corrupt. And it's, it's not Caesar or Cicero, and we should just forget about this, and we should go back to the sources. And some people say this is what happened in the Renaissance. They just got rid of all this Arabic, um, you know, nonsense. And they got, got back directly to the Greek sources, which were much purer and much better. But that's actually not true at all. So a lot of people have studied the Renaissance, and uh, there's a consensus among scholars that, uh, for instance, uh, you know, like the Arabic medical text, the Canon of Medicine by Avicenna, by Ibn Sina, you know, like who died in uh, 1037, this canon, you know, like was printed some 80 times uh, during the 16th and 17th century. It was used in many universities. It continued to be commented upon. Some people translated new Arabic texts in the Renaissance, you know, like so. There's uh, the example of Andreas Alpago, uh, somebody who died. I mean, who lived in the late 15th, early 16th century, who spent some time in Aleppo, who knew Arabic and who translated uh, um, certain, uh, you know, like medical medical texts, the Canon and Ibn Serapion. So we have all this uh, going on in the Renaissance, and the Renaissance is very much a time which actively engages with the scientific. Uh, scientific law and the same is true also for for astronomy astrology and other sciences mathematics so it's not true at all that there's like this big break it's rather a continuous tradition and uh, then um, this this carries on and even today we have certain terms for instance duramata or pia mater for the meninges of the of the brain uh, which are basically calcs you know like loan translations from arabic and uh, so they're Arabic technical terms in their Latin guise, which physicians still use today, but they don't always know that they're actually using Arabic terms because they occur in Latin, and it, this uh, tradition has been hidden. Now let's look a bit at the um, at the East as well, or let's look a bit how there was influence uh, or, or an impact of this uh, tradition uh, developed in the Islamic heartlands onto the Eastern periphery. On the one hand, we have something nowadays, which is called Yunani medicine. Or Yunani means Greek in Arabic, and it's the term for a medical practice which exists in Pakistan and India 
which is sometimes contrasted with Ayurvedic medicine, kind of the you know, like the Indian, the native Indian uh, medicine. And this tradition is basically continuing Islamic, you know, like the Islamic medical tradition. They read the same text, you know, Avicenna's Canon, and so on and so forth, even today. And there was a Home Office paper produced two, three years ago, which looks at the problem of uh, what professional qualification to recognize in order to grant somebody a status of uh, you know, like working in the UK. And uh, they talk about 20 practitioners of Yunani medicine in the UK. So they, there's even a Mohsen Institute, uh, I think in Sheffield, uh, uh, dispensing or giving, giving out diplomas in Yunani medicine. So this, or Yunani tip as it's sometimes called. And so this is an active tradition which survives today practice in India but also like in the UK and elsewhere. The other thing which happened is that uh, there were certain contacts with, with with China I mean and and Tibet for instance I mean there's a big project um, being conducted at the moment by colleagues of mine at the Warburg Institute and uh, they look at uh, influence of Islamic medicine or interaction between Islamic medicine and Tibetan medicine and to less extent Chinese medicine I mean this hasn't been looked at much bef so far but I mean it looks like there was exchange of ideas there too. And finally, I should say that within the uh, Arab, Arab world, the modern Arab world, you can go to book stands in, in Cairo and find many medieval medical manuals uh, being used by people today. And uh, a colleague of mine traveled to, to Yemen in the mid-90s and he found somebody sitting there, like selling his uh, herbs, medicinal herbs, uh, so some sort of spread out in front of him on some sort of blanket. And he had a pancakes, he had a little poster saying, this is uh, the you know, like shop for uh, Arabic medicine, uh, nat uh, natural medicine. We do it as Avicenna, as Ibn Sina did it, uh, the whole range. And so you have uh, somebody in Yemen in a big city you know, like selling these drugs, uh, you know, like advising people how to treat illnesses according to this medieval um, medical law. And so in this sense, on these different levels, whether it is in, in our modern university medicine, which is based indirectly on these Arabic traditions, whether it is directly in this Yunani medicine, which continues uh, um, you know, like certain strands uh, of this medieval uh, Islamic um, tradition, or whether it is directly in this uh, continuing Arab interest in these texts uh, used today to cure people, um, whether it is in any of these three things, you have a continuous presence of this medical tradition today. Peter's book, Medieval Islamic Medicine, written with Emily Savage-Smith, is now available.